The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you stoop to speak to us, giving us your written word and giving us the word become flesh, Christ, giving us life in your word. Thank you for condescending to communicate to us fallen people. It is so easy for us to think very highly of ourselves. To think of all of our abilities and skills and the aptitude that we display in countless tasks throughout the week and to, to think that we are wise and to think that we are strong. And in, and in some ways, we are marvelous creatures made in your image. You have done a good work in making people, and we are indeed remarkable, but we are also fallen, small, and broken. So it is easy to think too highly of ourselves. Thankfully, you speak truth to us to shape us and to redeem us and to build us, make us new. And so I pray this morning, Lord, as we open this passage, that you would do just that, that you would speak to us and that you would call us to newness, newness of life in this life. God, please draw near and Address us all in, in our various distractions, me, me and my distractions. Align our minds and our hearts with your word here. For this time here, speak and be clear. And use this time here for affecting change tomorrow and the next day and next week. Make a people that are different, that are set aside to you and are honoring to you and our witnesses in this world distinct from the world but in it Lord you have to build a people like that so, so please do so give grace to us this morning guide us in some way along the path that we are to walk and give us power to walk it give us hearts that want to walk it and the ability to do so Build a people, honor your name. Use us then to magnify your name in this world and to effect change in the world. Bring your kingdom to us here, your people, and then to those who are not yet your people. Bring your kingdom, let it come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Use your word this morning towards that end. Give me clarity, give us all focus. Speak, we ask you. Thank you, Lord. You are our hope. Speak now. Thank you. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Philippians chapter 2. We were last in this book a few weeks ago. Verses 12 and 13, a very familiar passage. 12 and 13, very familiar passage. It contains an exhortation, a command and a statement of encouragement. 
Verse 12 has the exhortation to the church. It says, Christians, obey. That is, work out your salvation. That's the requirement from God to his people, for his people, to work out, that is, to live out, to bring into real life existence right now in the here and now, the salvation life that you, the people of God, have already been given. Work that out. Live it out. In other words, what he's saying is that it is possible, inappropriate, but possible for a Christian, one who has been given a new life, to not live out that life in the here and now. To not live new. Or to use language from somewhere else in the book because, recall, Paul's working on the same basic thought now for over a chapter. Since the end of chapter 1, verse 27, he's been working on the same idea. So to use language from somewhere else, it is possible, inappropriate, but possible for a Christian not to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel, as a gospel-worthy citizen. That's from chapter 1, verse 27. But instead to live as a citizen of the world. Don't do that. That's the command of verse 12, chapter 2. Paired immediately, inseparably so, paired immediately with the encouragement of verse 13. Verse 13 begins with the word for. So there's a word to do, live this way for God, emphasis on God, God is the one at work. So we are to work for God is at work in us. God's at work in us to change our willing, to change our our internal heart attitudes, and to change our working, what we do. So we are to work and can work because he is at work in us, pulling out from us as he changes us on the inside, pulling out from us attitudes and then actions that are in accord with what pleases him. He's working in us according to his good pleasure. An encouraging enabling of us to obey his command, moving us to follow his decrees, just like Ezekiel said would happen when the new covenant came. That's verses 12 and 13. A restatement of something Paul had said before, and it's what brings us to our passage this morning, verses 14 through 16. He's going to wrap up this section of exhortation towards this gospel-centered citizenship. Wrapping it up this morning before he moves on, if you just look ahead, you see he moves on to talk about something different. He's going to talk about sending the examples of Timothy, etc., etc. So he's kind of closing off a section here this morning. He's going to touch on some similar themes again and give reason for why it's important that we live out our Christian lives here. He's going to command us and then give us reason why. Pulled all together, these three verses this morning present to us this this point. Here's my main point for this morning. Gospel-filled people shine forth dependent on God and at peace with each other. Gospel-filled people shine forth into a world of darkness, shine forth into the world dependent on God and at peace with each other. So we're going this morning. I'm going to make three observations that pull out what we are to do, why we are to do it, and how we are to do it. So it's going to be my three observations this morning. But first, let me read the passage. I'm going to read the whole paragraph so we can kind of refresh our minds with the context. 
I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 before focusing on 14 through 16. It's Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 2. I can make three observations from that passage, focusing on verses 14 through 16, especially the first half of verse 16. Here's the first one. The what. What are we to do? We put it like this, God's people are to work at humble dependence on him and unity with each other. God's people are to work at humble dependence on him and unity with each other. I draw that mainly from verse 14's command, but we need to build towards it a little bit to, to see how it comes to us because I'm preaching these two sentences. Verses 12 and 13 are one sentence. 14 through 16 are another sentence. And I'm preaching them with three weeks in between. So it's easy to think of them like this. But in fact, in the text, are they not? they're right next to each other. They're back to back. They flow right, right together. So he says... Obey God, verse 12, that is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you. Do all things without grumbling. That's the flow. Bing, bing, bing. All right together. And you see them particularly sticking together when you realize that the grumbling, as we'll talk about in a moment, is grumbling against God. So he's saying, obey God, work out your salvation with fear and trembling before God, for God is at work in you. Don't grumble against him. All flows right together. They're not two distinct three-week-apart topics back-to-back. So the reason I'm belaboring that a little bit is that it's important for us to see the, the tight connection here between Paul's exhortation to us to work out our salvation and first thing comes to mind do everything without grumbling and questioning this this is quite important it's immediately right on the surface of what paul thinks about when he thinks live out this christian life first thing comes to mind without grumbling and questioning Grumbling, it's a buzzword, should call to mind right away for you Israel's problem in the Old Testament, particularly in the Exodus. What were they consistently accused of? Grumbling. Some translations say murmuring. 
grumbling against God, against Moses especially. Paul picks up the same word, the same idea in 1 Corinthians 10.10 and tells the church there also not to grumble. Don't be like those who grumbled back then and were destroyed. He's quite concerned. First thing on his mind, do all things without grumbling. Consider grumbling. What is it? We all have some sense of what grumbling is, but let's think into it for just a second here. Grumbling. An attitude of discontent complaining. Of disapproving disagreement. A big problem because at its core, it is proud resistance to the will of God who has sovereignly, providentially reigned over all things that are. It's not to say that all things are right and good and holy and pure and lovely and pleasant, but they are through the hands of God, by the decision of God who is sovereign over all things. And grumbling, discontent, complaining, a disapproving disagreement is saying to God, God, if you were as smart as I am, if you were as wise as I am, as clever as I am, as loving as I am, as gracious as I am, as powerful as I am, as wise as I am, you would not do X. But you aren't and have done it. What's wrong with you? Proud indictment of the sovereign God and what he has messed up in my life. Grumbling. Now, often, particularly, not, particularly for Christians, we don't put it like that because we know we're not supposed to. Some people do. I mean, you've, you've, perhaps you've been that person, but you've met people like that who do put it like that. But, but a lot of times we don't put it like that because we know we're not supposed to talk like that about God or to God. But that's what's going on. That's grumbling bared. Realize that. We, we cover it sometimes with, with vague language or redirected language. I'm really frustrated by the weather. I mean, I've, I've said this. How many times have I hated January? I'm really frustrated by the weather. These inversions are terrible. Which is not to say inversions are good and healthy and great. But you realize what that is? If God understood the God who controls high-pressure patterns that create inversions, if God understood what is good and wise, he wouldn't have these inversions. I'm not frustrated at inversions. I'm frustrated at God. But I don't put it quite like that. I'm grumbling against the sovereign one who controls the weather. And traffic. Really angry at traffic. Who controls traffic? Not the civil engineers who make the, the stop signs and the lights. God is sovereign over all things and has determined that it's wise for you to be stuck in traffic. You're not frustrated at traffic. You're grumbling against God. Grumbling. Do you see it? 
This is important, and I plead with you, look at yourself, and don't just look at the, at the surface level, because if you're a Christian, you probably don't voice it as an attack, as an, an audible indictment of the Sovereign One. You probably don't voice it like that. But in your grumbling, and in your discontent, and in your complaining, and in your disapproving disagreement, you're grumbling. This is important. First thing that comes to Paul's mind when he thinks about living out our Christian lives. It's important because what we'll see in the, in the second point, it's important because of how it pleases God and how it leaves a witness in the world. If you think just for a second, if you prelude the second point, if you think for a second about trusting God and being content, that's a, that's a witness that's quite different. We're not like that. We're just like the world. There's no witness there. It's important for that. We'll come to that a little bit later. But it's also important for you. Think about it. It robs your joy. And significantly, negatively affects all the people around you. Give thought to this. Do you see the sin in your own frustrated, complaining, angst-filled, disagreeing heart? Understand, periodically I need to say something like this so that my words, my, my words sit on you. That we have, we have human to human. There's the word of God here and we have human to human communication going on also. And I need to say something that qualifies my human to human. I'm with you in this. I, I am I'm a great complainer. I am a glass half, maybe, maybe two-thirds empty person. I'm really good at this. So I'm not, I'm not poking into this to get at you and point out how bad you are. I, I'm, I'm there too, and we should be hunting out our sin. We should be hunting down our complaining, in this case, our complaining, negativity, our grumbling, because we want to root it out. Because we want to please God and provide a witness in the world and we want our own joy and we want to positively affect those around us. We should hunt it out so that we can grab it and yank on it. Get rid of it. So work, think. Don't give yourself a pass because you don't ever stand and shake your fist at God. When you're complaining in traffic, there you are. So do you see the sin of your own frustrated, complaining, angst-filled, disagreeing, negative, hard heart? Do you see it? At its root, realize, at its root is unbelief. You do not believe that the one who has ordained that thus and so be knows what he's doing and is doing good. So you don't work when you see, when you, when you look and you see, oh, there's the grumbling, there's the complaining. Don't complain, don't grumble. No, 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 that's not, that's not how you attack it. You work, believe. Which is a prelude for the third point because you can't do this without holding tight to the gospel, the how, third point that's coming up. Look for your grumbling 
and realize that's unbelief and the fight against it is not, don't grumble, the fight against it is believe. You have a God who is good. When he reigns over all the things that frustrate, that irritate, that aggravate, that hurt, that shame, that, that assault you, when he reigns over all those things, not to say they are good, he is good and can be trusted. Believe him. Do all things without grumbling. But notice this interesting thing. I've just applied this, obviously, in kind of a wide shotgun, weather, traffic. I could add in the relationships, how much angst is there between people. Applied it like this because it applies like this. But Paul takes this wide statement and does this with it. Narrows it down to a thing. So we would be wise to think about that thing that he narrows it to. He does so with his next word. He says, do all things without grumbling or, as my translation says, questioning. If you have the NIV or the NAS in front of you, it will say disputing or arguing. Changes our focus from God to people. Don't grumble against God or argue, dispute. When he uses this word in 1 Timothy 2, he renders it, it's rendered quarreling. And he wants no quarreling in the church. Don't grumble against God or quarrel with his people. That connection there bears some thought. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before God, not grumbling against Him nor quarreling with His people. That's the, that's the full first verse 14 thought and command. Which is just like, in, stated in reverse, just like what He has said over and over again already. Don't quarrel with, don't argue with his people is just the opposite of chapter 1, verse 27, the second half. Stand firm, side by side with one mind. Or carrying on down. To be of one mind, of the same love, in full accord doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, looking to their interests. That's just the flip of do nothing, or don't quarrel in everything. He's got the same idea on his mind here. If you're reading something, and an author spends paragraphs talking about it, talking about a particular subject, and then comes back and flips it around and talks about it again, and then comes back and flips it around and talks about it again, you should discern this author thinks this is really important. Wants us to be sure that we get it. He spends paragraphs 
coming at this from different angles and ties them very tightly together to walk not grumbling is to walk not quarreling now it's grumbling applies to many other things yes indeed but this is important A church that does not grumble against God and does not quarrel with itself, with each other, doesn't argue, doesn't have discord, contention. Very important to Paul, to God. Do all things without arguing or disputing to which many of us I, I, I highly, highly, highly doubt I'm going to get any disagreement on this. Who's going to say, actually, quarreling's good? A little disputing goes a long way. I mean, that, that's a wonderful thing. No, nobody's going to say that. So church, I just put this in front of you and say, we all nod, we all agree, we all memorize the verse, And then we walk out, and it's as if we set it aside, and we walk out into disputing and into contention, and into sometimes not not quite like this, but just, just, just rubbing, just disagreeableness. Kind of lead you to, you know, let's avoid that person. I don't get along well there. I'll go over here with people that I get along with easily. There's friction over there. He didn't fix the problem, he just avoided it. He wants a church that is not contentious, not a church that just avoids itself, so therefore never contends. He wants peace in the church, unity, side by side, linked arms, striving, not separation. You can avoid all kinds of fights with a thousand miles in between you. That's not the goal. Everybody can avoid fights with a thousand miles between them. What's a unique witness in the world is a group of people who are linked together, who are all different, and who side by side strive together of one mind in loving unity, working out disagreement and difference. So he says, don't grumble against God, and then puts his finger on something in particular about people and about the body that he has sovereignly gathered together, the person that he has put right next to you, and when we are inclined to think, that person's crazy. What were you thinking when you put him here, her here? I don't want to give that person time even, let alone lay down my rights for her. What you just found is the proud lifting up of self over against the wisdom of the sovereign God who put you together and said, work at unity. No, I don't like her. I didn't ask you. I put her, I put him here. Work at it. And it requires work. 
it will require us to expend effort to turn the other cheek. To expend effort to assume the best in this other. To make allowance for their errors and their sin. To set aside our own preferences. To forgive when offended. To love. That will require us to expend effort. But do you realize why? I mean, just God has many reasons, most of which I have no idea about, but at least this much I can put my finger on. Why would God do that? To provide opportunity for your change and for your growth that is so different than how the world works. And therefore, again, preluding the second point, speaks of a difference that the world does not know about. Of course he will bring people along next to you that you don't naturally get along with. with. Of course then he will tell you to, hoping in the gospel, work that out because that's all that's different. Did not Jesus say, they will know you have been with me when they look at you and see your love for one another? Not like the world loves. The world loves its friends. Of course the world loves its friends. I mean loving people who are different than you. That's what's distinct. Of course he would do that. So of course it will require work. And when we resist that, we are grumbling against God and saying he doesn't know what he's doing, has chosen poorly in who he's brought into my circle of life, the circumstances he has set up around me, even the church he has put me in. I know better. I will switch. Switch friends, switch circles, switch churches. No. Work out your salvation, Christian. Work at humble dependence on Him, particularly in the area of unity with His people. And realize that where you are not Where you are not in humility, counting others more significant than yourself, loving them, considering their needs and not just yours, right there, you are proudly resisting Him, grumbling against Him, rendering verdict against His clearly stated desire and will. He commands this. First thing on his mind. That's what we are to do. And the second observation, Paul tells us why. There could be many reasons why, but he tells us some of why. And again, I've preluded this a few times already, but here's the second observation. Why? We work to become a people in the world who please the Lord and provide a witness. We work to become a people in the world who please the Lord and provide a witness. 
I see this mostly in verse 15, which comes right out of verse 14. It's all one big sentence, I've said. It gives us reason for the command. He gives the command in verse 14, then verse 15 begins, that, so that, this is a reason. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. Now, we need to pause right there and state something very clearly, very carefully. This is not about becoming blameless and pure children of God in the sense of becoming a Christian. Talked about this three weeks back when we looked at the verses right before. But the people he's addressing, they already are Christians. They already have been given the gift of salvation, the grace gift of eternal life. So they already are the children of God. Already happened. They already are blameless and pure in their standing, in their position before God. I'm going to use a couple of semi-technical terms here that are very important to keep straight. In their position before God, and they're standing before God, they already are His children, blameless, pure, unblemished. And when I talk about pleasing God, same thing going on. Who fully please Him, cannot become more blameless, cannot become less blameless, cannot become more pleasing, cannot become less pleasing, because in position before God, He looks at Christians and sees the righteousness of Christ the righteous one placed on every single one of his people, clean, pure, holy, fully delighting. Full. He loves his people as much as he loves the Son. He can't love the Son more. He can't love his people more or less. Positionally, completely blameless, completely pure, completely unblemished, completely pleasing, positionally before God, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. That's glorious, and it's assumed already happened. Moving on from there, what he is talking about is our day-to-day, hour-to-hour, not position, but condition before God. What's Tuesday afternoon like, in other words? That's what he's getting at. Same thing he was doing up in verse 12. He's doing the same thing here. We must work towards a lived-out condition today, Tuesday, Thursday, next Saturday, etc. Blameless here in the world such that God would not speak to you as a Christian, as a son or daughter, and say, Son, Daughter, we have a problem here. It's Tuesday afternoon, and as I look at what just happened there in in your office at home in your backyard, you were grumbling against me and you're arguing with your brothers and sisters. This is not right. This is not what you are to be about. This is a problem here. This is a blemish on your character, my child. That's not to be. We've got to address that. To avoid that kind of conversation where God brings out blame 
spoken to his blameless ones. See the two there, position, condition? We are his blameless ones about whom he might have something to blame me for Tuesday afternoon or Thursday morning, etc. What we're talking about is avoiding his need to address sin with me, to confront me. We obey, verse 14, so as to be blameless and innocent before God. Right behavior, blameless. Right heart attitude, not resisting, not grumbling, not proud. That's innocent or pure is another way that might be translated. We work to be blameless with our hands and pure with our hearts. Children of God without blemish here in the world. That's the gospel's intended full effect in us. Catch this. To make new creations with the old gone and the new come who now walk in newness of life. New way of thinking, new valuing. Not just, the gospel is not just going to settle for forgiving me, forgiving you. God in the gospel aims to change his forgiven people. Think of a scenario of, of a parent, an earthly parent. Say a mother with a child, let's say a baby boy. If the baby is perfectly healthy, born healthy, everything works just right, all the fingers and toes, everything's like it's supposed to be, you are amazed, fully satisfied, delighted, overjoyed, a miracle has happened. Some cells have come together and a human being has been created and brought forth. And you look at this little baby and you say, seven pounds of amazing grace. I'm speechless. It's, it's awesome. Right? Many of us have been there. You, it, everything works perfectly. You couldn't ask for anything more. It's a marvelous, marvelous work of God. And while I say you couldn't ask for anything more, you are immediately wanting more. Appropriately so. Because immediately you want him to eat and sleep through the night. Right? And crawl and walk and figure out the bathroom and figure out long division and learn how to hit a curveball and learn how to drive, how to tie a tie, get a job, have children, right? All appropriately so. Necessarily so. And to do all of that then in a respectful and honoring and God-centered and humble and gracious and wise manner, you want a ton. You've got a long list of things you want for this. And 25 years in, seven pounds of amazing grace is insufficient. It's not satisfactory anymore. That's, not, no, that's no good. 
You don't want a boy forever. You want a man. A mature man. Appropriately so. Because the point of birth is not perpetual infancy. It is mature manhood to raise up a pillar who will stand in society and shine, for godly parents, shine amongst a crooked generation and display something marvelous and stand up and be someone that the world can be hung on. You don't even want a man that's a weak wimpy, poor man. You want a strong man to come from this little boy, don't you? Every one of us does. You're not satisfied with a little boy, nor are you satisfied with a 25-year-old little boy. You want a man, mature and strong. A miracle happened at birth. And it must move on beyond that. And towards that end, you do everything that you possibly can to discipline and teach, provide opportunity and resources and exposure and risk and protection to raise up from an infant, a newborn, a mature man. And God the Father is no worse parent than you are. Significantly better, in fact. He gives the grace needed for, spiritually speaking now, birthing his children and is fully, immensely, completely delighted with you. Newborn, the angels in heaven rejoicing. Couldn't ask for anything more. A child. And immediately he wants more. Appropriately so. Because he doesn't want a child, he wants a man. He wants us all to move on to mature manhood, womanhood. He does not intend to allow the accuser, the great accuser, to say to him, oh, sure, you can forgive them, but these image bearers of yours remain just as much a wreck as they were when I first broke them. Ha. He will not be stung by that criticism. In fact, he says, I forgive them and watch this. I make them new. I change them and I grow them up. Every day and every month and every year, I mature them and I bring about in them individually and in them corporately maturity. And one day I carry them all the way to the completion of that in glory. I indeed fix them. Ha. We are a part of something much bigger, much bigger than just my little life here, something much bigger. He works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure so that when Tuesday afternoon comes and I'm tempted to grumble against him, frustrated by the people that he's brought into my life or, or concerned about the disease that he's brought into my life or concerned about the passing of a loved one, when the temptation comes up and it says, Curse God and die. I instead would say, you instead, his goal, that you instead would say, no, we receive from the hand of a good God everything, all of it from his hand for my good, for his glory. I trust him. And that shines like a light in darkness because that ain't normal. It isn't. That displays a power from somewhere else, not from inside the human heart. 
Job's wife is voicing the concern of every human being. Your children are all dead. You're flat, broke, and diseased. God screwed you. Curse him and die. That's what's in the human heart. And Job says, no, by no means. He stands blameless in that moment and says, I will not curse this good God who from his hand gave me good and now has given me calamity. Yes, I will bless the name of the Lord. I will trust him. When we live like that, we shine in the darkness among a world full of people who don't have that same kind of life. Indeed, some people live as Stoics, and some people seem perpetually optimistic, but a fully reasoned hope that is optimistic for a reason that is true takes into account all of the factors and still hopes and still rejoices that is unique to the Christian, that pleases God immensely and shines a witness about what God is like, about what God does in people, and about where, where real life is found. He has always been about this. I say we're about something much bigger than just our little lives here. That passage makes this point in, in another interesting way that is perhaps not obvious when you read it through. But maybe as you read it through, there were little things kind of going off. I already mentioned the grumbling that might have tagged your, your mind back into the Exodus. But almost every other phrase of verses 15 and 16 is from the Old Testament. He's picking up the beginning of the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, and Moses' indictment of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, and Daniel's look ahead at the future in Daniel chapter 12 about the wise shining as lights, and Paul himself then is, is hoping to be in the day of the Lord like one who has not run in vain. He's picking up Isaiah 65 there. He's got about four passages that he either directly quotes from or strongly alludes to to point out something interesting. This that God's doing, this that God's calling you to, he's been about it forever and has made it possible for you. Because what Paul does with all those quotes particularly if you want to jot down just one of them, jot down the Deuteronomy 32 one, verse 5. There Moses speaks of Israel in its failure. Israel called no longer my children because they are a blemished people. They are the crooked generation. Israel failed. But God did not give up. He sent a servant to fix it. To make it possible now for us. So Paul takes that quote, these quotes in the Old Testament, 
outlining kind of the story of Israel, particularly that Deuteronomy quote, he takes it and he turns it. He says, you are the children of God. You are the unblemished ones. Not because of your own effort, but because of the effort of the servant, because of Christ. And now with Christ living in you, you have the power then to walk that out like he always has wanted a people for himself in the world, distinct from the world, but in the world. Distinct, but in it. Showing something greatly different from what people are are like and what God can make people to be like. New. He's always wanted to do that and is doing it in you. You are a part of a great great big movement of God to make a people pleasing to him, distinct, who shine, who live different, who do not grumble against him when all of life's circumstances come, but who rejoice in him and who trust in him and model for people, this is the God who is good and who can be trusted. And the only reason I believe that, the only reason I can live like that is because of the third point, because I'm holding tight to the gospel. So we're going to go there in a second to finish. But do you realize, Christian, this is a great, great big work that God is about throughout all of the ages in all of the nations to bring a people to himself who walk in this life blameless and pure unblemished, depending on him, at peace with each other, to the praise of his glorious grace that made it so, and as a testimony to the world around as to what we are to be like and how we can be like it. All to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he commands you to walk like this. Not only because it is, it is good and pleasing for you, but because his honor and this, for the sake of other people who will watch, their eternities perhaps even, these things, these big things are at stake in how we walk. We work so as to be in the world a people pleasing to the Lord providing a witness to him. And the third option, third observation briefly, is the how of the passage. What we are to do, why we are to do it, and then how. We are enabled to work, I already said it, by holding tight to the gospel. The flow of the sentence 14 tells us what to do. 15 tells us why. The end of 16, Paul comes back and says, this is what I'm working towards. I, I want this to show in you so that my life is, is, is effective. This is what I'm giving my life for. But in the middle there, very beginning of verse 16, he tells us something about how. Shine as lights in the word, world, holding fast to the word of life. That's how. Kind of like if I were to say, climb down the cliff, holding fast to the rope. Got something of, of manner. I don't mean that there are two disconnected things. You're going to climb down the cliff, and also there happens to be a rope there. Hold on to that. 
This is how you climb down the cliff. In other words, what he's saying is that you cannot do this in and of yourselves. Thankfully, he has not left us to do it in and of ourselves. Everywhere, Paul constantly circles back, points us to, reminds us of what he has done, what God has done for us in the gospel. He constantly presses that onto our minds, Christian, to remind you of it. And he means more than firmly, resolutely agree with the gospel. More than that. Not less than that. We have to know the message of the word of life. The word from God about life, about where life is found. You've got to know, know the message. That's the message of the cross. What God did in sending Christ to come and be crucified, to pay for our sin that we might live, have eternal life. You've got to know that and, and indeed hold on to that, to not disagree with it, not throw it away, not forget about it. But he means more than that. And, and Christian, this, this is the perhaps the corner around which some of us fail to step. Because you, you might hear me talk about hold tight to the gospel. You might read a phrase, holding fast to the word of life, and you might think, I completely, totally agree with the gospel. Not for a second do I disagree with it. Not for a second do I believe there's any other way to be saved. Not for, not for one iota of, of any fraction of time do I think that you can go to heaven any, any other way. Of course, I'm here. But there's a great difference. There's a, there's a great gap, or perhaps it, there's a corner to be turned between intellectually completely agreeing with it and actively, vigorously placing faith in it. in the God of the gospel. There's a difference there. Faith is different than intellectual agreement. To live grasping the gospel or to live centered on the gospel is to take God's promises, Christian, that are yours because of the gospel, so you're, you're working, like this, this happens sometimes in, in a flash of time, but I'm going to describe it in a little bit more time. So you're working through, I'm a Christian, at the cross he paid for my sin, at the cross he brought me into relationship with him, at the cross he put his spirit within me, he made me his child, he promised then to always do me good, to deliver me from evil, to provide for my daily needs, to protect me from temptation, to work out his will in my life. Okay, I face this challenge, this circumstance, which is shouting at me, other. Whatever the other is. The other of... Steve, where you need to find life, where you would find life, wine, women, and song, etc. 
Really? Oh, this is the offer. I see this. It, express it flippantly like that, but there's pressure. There's temptation on Tuesday afternoon. It's where, where you find your life. What protects you? What, what defends you? What, what brings to you joy and hope? There's, there's offers rising up from the world constantly, and you take that and you put against it all of the promises of God. No, I will be your deliverer. I am your hope. I take care of your needs. You put them together. The things that are true, promised in God's word, secured for you by the cross, next to all the things that your eyes see and your heart feels and your gut is lurching towards, and you disbelieve all of those lies and trust him. Now that has to happen like that. So it's not likely that in the moment of temptation on Tuesday afternoon, that's going to happen if you're not constantly working at it. If you're not constantly washing your mind with the Word. It's not likely. It's like, like, any, like any bit of growth. I can't walk out tomorrow and run a marathon. I've got to work constantly at it. I have to wash my mind with the Word to see His promises, to express to Him my dependence, my need, to ask Him to, to build in me increasing maturity so that when Tuesday afternoon or wherever comes, I've got something in me. Promises at hand. Faith right there to be drawn upon. To hold tight to the gospel does not mean just to believe the facts about the gospel. It means to believe, to trust the God who is yours because of the relationship that he created at the cross and the promises he's extended to you. You believe him, believe them, and disbelieve the offers from the world the threats from the world. That's the only way, the only way that we can ever hope to do what we are to do, walk through life without grumbling, without quarreling. It's the only way, in fact, that you can have any hope to live the Christian life in general to hold tight to the gospel, to believe him. Christian, this is the great hope extended to you. Take it. Grasp it. Fight in every temptation. Believe him. Gospel-filled people Shine in the world, dependent on Him, and in loving unity with each other. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us, please? Help us, please. 
if we are honest, sometimes we feel like we're doing okay, but lots of times we're honest. We feel like there is a great gap between what we should be and what we are. Sometimes in those moments you, you show us what's really going on. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that in those moments you would protect them from being crushed and you instead would encourage them that you are for them, that you can be trusted. You have bound them to you in the gospel and extend yourself and all of your promises to them as sure things to be actively embraced. Speak that to them in a way that is more powerful than my human English words. Speak that to them in a way that sinks in and convinces them, that works in them on their wills, that you would move them then to follow your decrees. Have your way with us, your people, and build your church that we would be a people pleasing to you and be a testimony in the world about what it's like to be changed, to be renewed in the image of God. Make a church like that here, I pray, working all of us towards that end. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.